there's always a heightened note of anticipation as you and I assemble for the worship services on Sundays and certainly the Bible study hour on Wednesday. A time of such tranquility and ease and serenity as we open the marvelous pages of the Word of God. As we sing praises of exaltation unto God, as we pray so earnestly from our heart. This evening, as we're gathered with the beauty of God's creation about us on the outside, we'll spend the next few moments looking at a title, a lesson I've entitled, as you can see on the wall to my left. I would already ask you to at least ponder the following with me, though. The age of this planet is not just a matter of idle trivia. It's not just a matter of idle consideration. Before we're finished tonight, I believe we'll appreciate the fact that in so many ultimate matters of truth and reality, at least in an indirect fashion, rest upon the result of that, of that particular question. As you consider that thought in your mind this evening, these introductory thoughts, I'm sure, will not be in many ways a surprise. If you read many articles, sometimes even those that occur in the newspapers, sometimes those that certainly occur in a variety of particular sources. But any time, even almost indirectly, when the age of this planet is mentioned, it is almost presumed that it's an exceedingly ancient age. As those articles and the other kinds of matters are presented to us, quite frankly, it is used in many cases to present a rather notable contention to those who would believe in the Bible. It may be that you've even heard or had individuals give you a comment to the effect that you really believe that. There is no consideration in science that leads to the credence of what you're upholding. Sometimes you'll hear statements at least not too distinct from that. This evening I would invite us to at least study for the next few moments. And if you're using your Bible, I hope you have that available. We're going to be looking at a number of verses and the sum total of them will make a rather concrete presentation. The age of the planet, the age of earth. Now, quite frankly, as we do that, we're going to attempt to do so in such a dramatic fashion. Using the presentation of the Scriptures, we will, in fact, be able to answer more questions than just that one. It's almost as if the great God of heaven, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, has made available to us not only the answer to that one, but almost in directly associated ways, the answer to a number of others along with it. We will, in fact, get more than we bargained for. But in fact, as we come to the next slide, why don't we at least present it as follows. In 1954, a very highly respected scientist made a rather notable set of studies, and may I say that as the synopsis and summary of that was written and published in the Scientific American. Maybe you're familiar with that particular journal. Many, many readers thereof to that particular journal. I've simply taken out a few of the comments that that gentleman made in that article. Let me quote, Given enough time, it will almost certainly happen at least once. Time is, in fact, the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible probable, and the probable virtually certain. One has only to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. A scientist made that statement. 
Did you notice some of the statements he made therein? Did you notice some of the interesting conclusions that, in fact, he asserted? Time is the hero of the plot. No matter how unlikely you and I may deem something to be, he says all you have to do is wait long enough. And even though in your purview it may be reckoned as impossible, if you wait long enough, that'll become likely. And if you wait even longer, it'll be virtually certain. As you give thought to all of those things, that is used, of course, to highlight the understanding of what so often is taught in textbooks, scientific journals, the understandings that underlie, at least from the scientific community standpoint, a large number of the things that are taught and done. Time is the hero of the plot. Did you notice he even used the word miracle? What appears impossible, if you just wait long enough, it'll become possible. Look at the bottom of the slide then. Modern day science, these kinds of ages are now rather often taught almost as if they are fact, as if they are truth. The universe is purported to be approximately 15 billion years old. Earth is purported to be approximately 5 billion years old. Those are both with a B now, billion. And the human family, the mankind, if you please, in the analogy or at least the presentation of this matter of evolution, he ended, ended up coming about roughly 2 million years ago. And that's with an M. But those ages, you see, reckoned in such a way that most of those that consider themselves intellectual or intelligent or at least familiar with the matters of science often don't even pose so much as a question with regard to them. When the f simple fact is they are nowhere near in harmony with the Bible, not even close. As you and I will discover tonight, the age of this entire universe, and especially that of the earth itself, is to be numbered far less than even 10,000 years. As you can see, that's a far cry from 15 billion. Now, as you can also see, it isn't difficult to appreciate that those differences in ages are so vast, so extreme, so large, that in fact it ought to be possible to understand so swiftly that if one is true, the other one can't be. And of course, you and I know which is the one that's true. You and I know this book teaches rather powerfully, rather directly, very certainly, the beautiful matter of creation. We're going to devote just a moment in the next segment of our lesson and appreciate then that this age of the earth is a rather vital matter. Could we even note it now? If the Bible ages are correct, there hasn't been nearly enough time for anything like what the scientist would say is evolution. There just hasn't been nearly enough time in less than 10,000 years. May I submit to you that's the point. And according to this book, there hadn't been enough time for it because it never happened. There was just nothing ever like that that took place. And so on to the next presentation, or at least the next set of considerations you and I shall go. Could I invite you to notice that the statements that I've just made have not at all gone without observation. In fact, there have been through the decades quite a number of individuals who wish to hold the Bible in one hand and the most modern and up-to-date teachings of science in the other, and claim that both are perfectly harmonious and that both are true. When it comes to this matter of these ages we've discussed, 
what are, then are some ways that these compromises or these harmonies have attempted to be presented? May I submit to you two seemingly stand at the top of that heap. One of them is this one. As you read through the book of Genesis, it's not difficult to appreciate that the opening couple of chapters speak very often about days, day one and day two and day three and so forth. And as those events are set before us, some, it seems, are quick to say, apparently, there must be some vast epochs or ages of time inserted somewhere in the biblical text to somehow add up and make some total of these millions and even billions of years. But where do you put it? Some have asserted maybe those days mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 were not literal days. Maybe, so they say, those were just figurative representations of long periods of time. Maybe you've heard someone make that statement. Another approach is, as you might ask about it, is maybe those opening chapters of Genesis were never intended to be taken literally. Maybe none of it is to be interpreted literally. Maybe all of it, chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis, should in fact be interpreted in a symbolic, figurative way such that only general lessons or principles are to be drawn out of it. Borrowing that approach, then you should not read literally as if any of those initial events in Genesis actually happened. You probably have already at least considered in your mind, again, a number, and you can find many articles that will so strongly argue one or the other or both of them. Our point, at least for now, is to consider the following. There is not the slightest hint that Genesis chapters 1 to 11 is to be taken anything but literally. In fact, as you give thought to the nature of the Holy Scriptures, could I ask this? How many times do later Bible writers refer back to events which were recorded in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and referred to them as if they were literal, actual events? For example, in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus referred to the days of Noah as a powerful lesson in respect to the end of time, question, did Noah then not literally exist? Should one then conclude that there's not going to be an end of time either? You begin to see the idea. If you begin to question any veracity of those early chapters, then that means every reference to them has to be questioned as well. When Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, referred back to the flood of Noah's day as a real event, should we then not trust the writings of Peter? One by one, so many Bible books then crumble into nothingness. They crumble into untrustworthy documents if you start questioning the character of the Word of God. I've only listed two quick examples. Many of the books of the Old Testament fall into that same consideration. When Ezekiel referred to Noah, does that then mean that we can't trust the book of Ezekiel either? May I submit to you, every reference that we have, to those chapters is to literal, actual, occurrent events. With that in mind, could I invite you to notice, if you allow a compromise with respect to that, is it then not also easily appreciated that you can begin to at least ponder compromises with respect to the other portions of the Word of God too? Could one not reason as follows? 
Well, Jesus referred to those books as if they were real events. And if they really weren't, then how trustworthy can I believe the plan of salvation to be? How trustworthy should I appreciate the other arguments related to the structure and ongoing character of the church? If you start questioning any part of it, why not question all of it? God has embedded within His Word conclusions that again lead us to the fact that these compromises that have so often been asserted simply are not believable. You can't hold the Bible and organic evolution at the same time and claim that both are true. When it comes to these ages and the other factors we've studied, they are not in such a way they can be harmonized. No wonder as you come to the bottom. There are a number of specific statements that you and I might be able to quickly make. I've simply listed them as follows. One could in fact devote a lengthy series of, of, of ongoing presentations as it relates to this. What are some of the particulars that evolution holds to so dearly that in fact opposes this book so strongly? Well, here's just a few of them. What about the order of creation? The Bible's very clear, isn't it? Light, day one. The firmament, day two. The waters were gathered in plant life, day three. The celestial bodies of the heavens on day four. Life in the earth and in the air, or rather in the oceans and in the air on day five. Day number six, land-dwelling animals, and then also that same day, mankind. That order, again, is so clear from the Word of God. But consider what evolution says. That order is turned around noticeably. Notice the sun and moon didn't come along till day four, and yet, according to evolution, the sun was here long before earth was. Which one are we going to believe? What about the other considerations? The various attributes of life. Evolution says that there was all kinds of life long in, in, in the plant kingdom long before man. You and I would notice in the Bible, three days is all that separated it. Plant life existed a mere three days before man, and that's all. Not millions and perhaps even much longer than that, years. Can we also not see maybe the following... The evolutionary scheme would say that if one were to look upon these vast ages in those ways that we noted earlier, isn't it still true that day number three of the biblical account says the plant life came about that day and we know plants can't live without the sun. Well, sure enough, the next day the sun was created according to the Bible and yet evolution would say that there was perhaps long periods of time it's not possible to put those together. Could we say as we close that slide, what then does the Bible claim then is the age of the earth? As we study that with some care and do so, might we proceed as follows. First, a general comment as to the accuracy and in fact the wonderful accuracy on every point that the Bible addresses. You and I would be quick to say that this Bible is not, let's say, a science textbook per se. You would have a hard time learning physics by simply studying the Bible, I freely confess. And you'd have a difficult time learning chemistry, studying only the Bible. But could we not also assert this, that the author of this book 
is none other than the almighty, awesome, omnipotent God of heaven. And anything that he says in it is true and accurate and correct, even when it touches matters such as science or geography or history. Anything that the Bible asserts is true. The psalmist put it like this in Psalm 119, verse 128. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Question, how much then is right? He said all things that the Bible had, had taught and asserted. 32 verses later in Psalm 119, verse 160, we read on that occasion, The sum of thy word is truth. Perhaps you and I can also remember, didn't Jesus rather powerfully say in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, in light of those things, could we not then see that there are a number of other places then in the Word of God in which we find that what the Bible taught long predated what the human family itself discovered. We'll just simply comment then in passing that you and I have every reason to believe and trust in this with the fullness of that which it says. In fact, it doesn't that go hand in hand with the whole nature prophecy. Time and again in the Old Testament we read of prophecies that literally, minutely, and exactly came to pass hundreds of years later. How did those prophets know those things? Because the one revealing to them that message was not human merely in character. It was the Holy Spirit informing them what to write. And so when they wrote on matters, even if it was scientific in character, it was with the wisdom of heaven it was with the knowledge and understanding of that far greater realm than what simply is on this earth. Surely then, as you come to the reliability of Genesis chapters 1 to 11, I would ask you to just comment how many times the Bible writers make often reference back to those chapters and not the first time does it ever mention in a figurative, symbolic, non-literal fashion. There really was a worldwide flood. But that's in Genesis chapter 6. There really was a Tower of Babel, but that was in Genesis chapter 11. There really was a literal six-day creation, but that was in Genesis chapter 1. And God really did organize and design marriage, though that occurred in Genesis chapter 2. There really was a Garden of Eden, but it was described in Genesis chapter 2. That point could, of course, go on and on through the fullness of those 11 chapters. Maybe in light of that, you and I can now appreciate. It's time to perhaps revisit the question that I used at the outset of the lesson. So does the Bible anywhere come out and actually say how old the earth is? If it does, this settles it. There is no longer any need for discussion on this point for those that believe the Bible. What does it say? Is it to be numbered into the billions of years, or is it to be numbered at most into the thousands of years? There's a great difference between those numbers. As we begin, let's try to arrange it in the following fashion, proceeding to appreciate it in the following way. May I invite you to think about a few of the passages, a few of the statements, not only that Jesus made, but also that some of the other inspired writers of the Bible themselves made. 
first of all, in the 19th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. You may remember that in verse 3 of that chapter, there were those Pharisees who approached the master, and they had a very pertinent question. The question was related to the very topic of divorce and remarriage. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, although the verses that follow speak, of course, in direct fashion about the Lord's answer to the question, could we at least from passing note the way he answered it in the very next verse for the first part of it at least? Jesus' first response was, Have ye never read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, you, immediately you'll notice that the Lord hearkened his listeners back to the very scene of the events of Genesis chapters 1 and following. Have you never read? So the Lord brought them to the appreciation that the answer to their question was written in the halls of inspired literature long in the past. But it was available to them for reading. Have you never read? And then he explained what he meant. That at the beginning, he made them male and female. Did you note the prepositional phrase? The particular scene characteristic of when man and woman were made occurred at the beginning. It was not billions and billions of years after the beginning, but it was at the beginning. The pronoun is significant. It cannot be argued that there was, again, the thing that we noted earlier, that man came rolling along two or so million years ago, but that the universe and everything else had come about 15 billion years ago. If that's true, man hasn't been here since the beginning. But Jesus said that he was. At the beginning, God made them male and female. And as if that one's not clear enough, Mark's account is even stronger. In Mark 10, verses 6 and following, that same presentation from the pen of the writer Mark, it's asked like this, Have you never read that he which made them at the beginning of the creation made them male and female? There's another prepositional phrase added. It was not just the beginning, it was the beginning of the creation. And so we again see that man and woman, male and female, human beings have been here virtually since the very beginning of the creation. Not vast billions of years later, not only that, what did Paul affirm in the 20th chapter, rather the 20th verse of the opening stanza of the book of Romans? For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Could you reflect with me a moment on that passage? The invisible things of Him, the Him refers to God. The invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Now, when did Paul say those things were visible? When did he say they were comprehensible? For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world. May I submit to you, Paul affirmed that human beings have been here since the very beginning in a position to appreciate the marvelous wonder of the creative efforts of God. One more time, if organic evolution is correct, man is a rather latecomer. Billions of years have passed when there were no human beings here to witness anything. 
Paul said from the beginning, they've been here witnessing the great wonders of what God has made. Maybe in light of those things, we could appreciate a conclusion. The Word of God from those passages and even others highlights in very strong language the fact that human beings have been here since virtually the very beginning, able to appreciate what God has fashioned and made, able to in fact interact with Him in the way that He set forth. It is because of those things maybe now we can ask this. So if human beings have been here in this fashion, in this way, who is the first man? We know well what organic evolution teaches, that there was this slow procedure of evolution over long periods of time, what was ultimately not human finally became human. Nothing further from the truth could in fact be taught. Notice how that disagrees so strongly with the Word of God. You might in fact notice me, the Bible names the first man. We are not left to wonder what kind of creature this may have been. 1 Corinthians 15.45 absolutely names the first man. Paul said Adam was the first man. There was no human before him. He was the first one. That being said, we are then in a position to make that conclusion near the bottom of that slide. For you and I now know the trustworthy account of Genesis chapter 1. And we appreciate that Adam was the first man and therefore we know Adam was fashioned on day number 6. That's when God made him. That's when God created him. He was fashioned in the very image of God. Let us make man in our image, Genesis 1.26. In fact, as you give thought to the, the statements not only of that day, but of later ones referring back to it. What a marvelous thing to understand then that the earth apparently, based on the trustworthiness of that opening chapter in the Bible, the earth itself is only five days older than man. So if you and I by some means can ascertain the age of man, we will be within five days of ascertaining the age of the earth. And may I submit to you, that's the approach we'll take. Does the Bible provide for us how old man is? How long has man been on this planet? And if we can ascertain that, then we again to within a week will have the age of the earth. Let's begin it then like this. First of all, could I ask you to notice just in passing the powerful nature of how the Bible puts to rest one of the statements that I made earlier. I made the statement that one of the claims that sometimes is made is that those days in Genesis chapter 1 were not literal days. Some would like to think that those were long epochs or ages of time. Have you ever noticed the way that opening chapter defines those days? It doesn't leave us much room to give much thought to them because it defines them for us. As you read through the events characteristic of the opening day of God's creative activity, that's the day he fashioned light. And then it says, And the evening and the morning were the first day. And then we have the record of the second day in which the firmament was created. And then at the close of that description, he says, And the evening and the morning were the second day. And that pattern continues throughout all six days. Each one of these days had an evening and a morning. 
What does that sound to you like? Does it sound like that's consisting, let's say, of, oh, perhaps a few million years, and yet somehow it could be such that it has an evening and a morning? May I submit to you that that, again, doesn't seem to allow any harmony with what later occurs in regard to that chapter. For example, think about day number three. So plant life was fashioned and made that day. And yet if we wish to hold to that, evening and the morning, apparently the plant survived somehow in total darkness for millions of years. Absolute nonsense. No such thing, of course, could ever have happened. We know of, that it didn't happen that way. These were literal 24-hour days that you and I know now. They had an evening and a morning. Not only that, could I ask you to notice that that very reckoning corresponds perfectly to the Hebrew understanding of the way time was measured, the chronology that they utilized. You and I know that we start our day at midnight, but the ancient Hebrews didn't. They started their day at sundown. So you and I would be getting close to starting the next day if we rendered things according to the Hebrew mechanical ways of doing it. Evening came first until the sunrise the next morning, and then it was the daytime portion of that day, the sunlight, the, the sun portion, evening and morning. No wonder in light of those things, you'll notice the lesson text that was read in our hearing this very evening. It seems to me that's one of the strongest verses that helps you and me appreciate what God intended us to know about those days. Back to Exodus chapter 20. It was on that occasion that Moses, of course, had gone to Mount Sinai and the marvelous set of laws were given to him to distribute to the children of Israel. One by one, those commandments were given. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image nor bow down to one. Commandment three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But notice number four with me. We each remember that it goes something like this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But there's an extended description of it, and I would invite you to listen as I read it. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. So far, I suppose there isn't too much to question. God gave them the commandment relative to the fact that on this seventh day of the week, you are to rest. You're not to work. Your son, your daughter, not even your animals are to work that day, he told those ancient Israelites. But it's the next verse, verse 11. So far, no one would question that this day was a part of a typical week. A week has seven days, and you're to take the seventh one, the last day of that week, off. You're not to do any work that day. But verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Did you note the logical presentation? You're to rest on the seventh day, and the reason for it takes you back to the creation. For in the very same way, God worked six days, and then He rested the seventh. The conclusion is inescapable. 
The time God worked is exactly the same time here. The days in Exodus 20 are the same length as the days back in Genesis 1. 24-hour periods of time. That definition, you see, of what that day was lets us then consider somewhat more thoroughly and fully this age of man. At this point, probably you're in position to notice that this answer is not given to us in, say, just one verse of the Bible. We'll have to put a few verses together to reach our conclusion, but this is it. Our goal, again, was to determine what's the age of man. Could we not do it as follows? From our perspective today, going back in time, how long ago did Jesus live? Not any of us would have any question or doubt about that one because our calendar is a testimony to that, isn't it? When you open up your calendar, look at it. This is 2016 A.D. What does the A.D. mean? That's Anno Domini. That's Latin for in the year of our Lord. You see, even our calendar is a testimony to when Jesus lived. It was roughly 2,000 years ago when He walked in the flesh on this planet. No amount of historic revisionism can change that. Jesus walked on this planet in the flesh approximately 2,000 years ago. With that now, you and I can proceed to go further back in time. How much time elapsed from Jesus back to Abraham? Now there, we're spanning a fair amount of Old Testament history, no question about that. But nonetheless, the fact remains, how long was it from the days of Abraham until the days of our Lord Jesus Christ walking in the flesh on the earth? One more time, I know of no scholar anywhere that would question it. It was roughly 2,000 years. In fact, you can piece together rather clearly the year Abraham was born. And as you do that, you again find it was only a very small number of years different than 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. For that reason, you and I might pause then to note this. It has been 4,000 years from your day and mine back until the days of Abraham. 2,000 years back to Jesus and 2,000 more years from our Lord back to Abraham. A total of 4,000 years, four millennia. At this point, only one fact remains. How much time elapsed from Abraham further on back to Adam? If you and I could answer that one, all we have to do is add whatever figure we get to the 4,000 we've already got and roughly add one more week and we'll have the age of the earth. Now, may I submit to you that, of course, that question, if the Bible is true, the answer to that one is going to be a bit of a challenge, at least in one way, because you and I know that the flood occurred in the reality of those very chapters. And the flood, of course, destroyed any kind of records that weren't etched on stone, no things that were otherwise just recorded on any kind of non-durable matter. It would have been lost in the flood. Where then do we find the answer? It's, of course, back to the same book. Have you ever noticed that you and I have been given in the sacred word of God a number of chronologies? But one of them, in fact, two of them are very special. Could I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 5 for just a moment? The fifth chapter of the book of Genesis, and we certainly won't read the fullness of that chapter, but I just did want you to note the following. 
This chronology, and yet another one we shall notice in a moment, is a bit different than some of the other chronologies in the Bible. For example, when you read 1 Chronicles, we all know that it says so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and it goes through long lists of genealogies covering dozens of generations. But with that in mind, look how this one reads. Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his, old li- in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth lived in 105 years and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And the pattern continues after that. You notice what was included. Not only was the name of the father given and not only was the name of the son given, the age of the father when the son was born was given. Every time it's that way. We know both father and son's names, and we also know the age of the dad when the son was born. So you'll see this genealogy is different. Not only does it include genealogical information, it also includes chronological information. All we have to do is take a pencil and paper or calculator and add up the ages of Genesis chapter 5. Now you'll notice that verse number 3 starts at Adam. As you get to verses 31 and 32, you come to Noah. So when we've tallied up the numbers, we'll know how many years elapsed from the days of Adam to the days of Noah. Turn over six chapters to Genesis chapter 11. At this point, as you pick up in verse number 10, you notice that Shem, the son of Noah, is described. And one more time, the genealogy picks up without skipping a beat. We know the name of the father, the name of the son, and the age of the father when the son was born. And by the time you reach verses 27 and following, you have arrived at the days of Abraham. So all we have to do is take the genealogies of those two chapters and add up the ages that are given. The answer is this. It's approximately 2,000 years. So we had 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years from Jesus until now. 2,000 times 3 is 6,000. No wonder then we can at least present it like this. Here's a tabular format. If you actually are able to look at that, it, it shows you the names of all of these Old Testament patriarchs, the names of these individuals, and it gives you at least a visual way to appreciate how they interrelated time-wise. You'll notice, for example, the top is Adam, and look how he shared life on this earth with so many of his children and grandchildren on to a number of generations thereafter. Again, when you add all of that up, you don't find a much different number than 2,000 years. It's slightly less, admittedly, but it's within 50 years of 2,000 years. In light of all those things, we are in a position to draw a rather dramatic conclusion. How old is the earth? Well, as you and I have already seen, Adam, until now, about 6,000 years. And as you give thought to that 6,000 years... That's a very definitive statement. 
first thing you and I can notice, scientists, at least some, might be quick to say, but humans have been here about two million years. The Bible just doesn't uphold a number anywhere close to that big. In fact, it's to be numbered far less than even 10,000 years. Surely in light of that, we're now in position to reach our final conclusion. How old is the earth? Not much more than 6,000 years. The Bible just won't permit an age much longer than 6,000 years and yet be consistent with all of its teachings. That means there hasn't been nearly enough time for organic evolution. And in fact, we know again that has so many contradictory statements relative to the teaching of the Word of God on a number of accounts. And so the age of the earth brings us then to observe maybe one final thought. Are there scientific evidences that might even be levied in support of an earth that's that young, at least from the perspective of science? The answer is yes. That would in fact go a little beyond the appreciation of what time we have this evening, but you could make reference to physics. There are a number of things in geology. There are some interesting features in paleontology. There are a number of rather notable appreciations in astronomy, all of which, when looked upon through the lens of Scripture, are in perfect harmony with it. Perhaps as we conclude our lesson tonight, we are in position, I suppose, to say that the age of the earth, as vital a matter as that is, so many things in our world are etched in such a way that they rest upon it, and hence... It's often used as a matter to bring question and doubt into the lives of our youngsters and sometimes even you and I who are older. If the devil can plant any doubt in your mind or mine about any portion of this book, it's a short leap to then start questioning other parts of it. May we always trust fully, thoroughly, absolutely and exactly everything that it says. Always seeking to rightly divide it. 2 Timothy 2.15 always approaching it the way that Paul commended in the lives of the Thessalonians. For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually also worketh in you that believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Tonight as we close this lesson, the earth is not nearly as old as many would like to think that it is because the Bible in correctness asserts that its age is to be numbered just a bit over 6,000 years. Tonight, if the Word of God is true and accurate and correct, even in matters like that, isn't it to be completely trusted in every other thing? There is a heaven. Jesus did die on the cross and He did so for your sins and mine. Believe that with all of your heart. If you've never rendered initial obedience to the gospel, why not tonight? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His matchless name as a Son of God, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If you'll attend to that and walk faithfully till death, heaven will be your final and eternal home. But that does mean that if you have left the faith, if you've lived in a way that has brought shame upon Jesus, upon His church, come back to your first love tonight. He's waiting after all. He's wanting you to come back to Him. 
If we could pray to God on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do that. A song of encouragement has been chosen. If there's anyone in the audience that would like to come, why not do it now? While together we stand and while we sing.